You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Tuesday, October 19th, 2021. I'm Kutta Babcock. And I'm Ellie Shannon. And you're tuned in to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, I explain updates in campus news, and Portia Cook discusses the murder of a Longmont postal worker. After that, Eliza Droder will update us, us on CSU's athletics. And then KCSU News features the Speaking Well podcast, where we'll learn about social supports. Then, Coda tells us about how police are being questioned after a woman's body was found in a police vehicle. We hear from Anton Schindler about the life of Babe Ruth in his podcast, Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler. After that, I'll be giving information on COVID-19 and explaining how Facebook is hiring new staff to create what they call a metaverse. Let's move right into campus and local news. Hey everyone, this is Ellie Shannon for CSU's Campus News. We're in our ninth week of classes already and halfway through our 2021 fall semester. CSU's Veterinary Teaching Hospital recently cut its hours after facing staff shortages. Until October 31st, the hospital will not be accepting any new emergency small animal patients for overnight visits. The small animal emergency and urgent care service remains open during the day from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Amanda Cavanaugh, assistant professor of small animal emergency and critical care at CSU, told the Collegians Piper Russell that it's difficult to hire people right now, but that the current staff is working very hard in challenging situations. According to Mary Gooden of CSU's College News, CSU researchers were awarded $1.5 million from the National Science Foundation for a research project aiming at improving ecological forecasting on protecting migratory birds from light pollution in urban areas. Artificial lights at night alter migratory birds' behavior, making it more likely for them to die during migration over urban areas. Kyle Horton will be the principal investigator for this study. It was a great weekend for CSU sports as the football team won 36-7 over New Mexico State. And the women's volleyball team won against the Air Force Academy on Saturday as well. For more on sports, stay tuned for Eliza Droder's updates on CSU athletics in about five minutes. Keep listening to KCSU for more news updates and make sure to tune into the Rocky Mountain Review Tuesdays and Thursdays from 4 to 5 p.m. I'm Ellie Shannon, and this is KCSU on 90.5 FM. Hello, I'm Portia Cook. Thank you for joining me for Tuesday's local news. Expect to see a significant shift when traveling on LeMay Avenue Tuesday. The city of Fort Collins has begun rerouting traffic on LeMay Avenue as work progresses on the Vine Drive, LeMay Overpass, and realignment of LeMay Avenue. Construction will reroute drivers traveling northbound on LeMay Avenue to a new section of the LeMay Avenue alignment. Drivers will then detour onto Buckingham Street before rejoining existing portions of LeMay Avenue and 9th Street. The reroute will allow crews to remove existing sections of LeMay Avenue situated between Buckingham Street South and the new alignment. Crews are also working on completing curbs and gutters that will be a part of the new alignment. The $24 million vine in LeMay Overpass is expected to be fully open to traffic by the end of 2021. For more information about the project, you can visit fcgov.com engineering vine LeMay. 
Police have named Jason Schaefer as the USPS postal worker who was shot and killed in Longmont on Wednesday. Police arrested Schaefer's ex-girlfriend, 26-year-old Devin Schreiner of Fort Collins, on charges of first-degree murder. Police believe Schreiner approached Schaefer while he was delivering mail to a group of neighborhood mailboxes found on Heather Hill Street and Renaissance Drive. It is believed Schreiner shot Schaefer multiple times before fleeing, leaving Schaefer to die at the scene. Several Somerset Meadows community neighbors were seen throughout the day on Thursday placing flowers and cards near the location where Schaefer was murdered. Tom Lawson, the president of the Homeowner Association, remembers how friendly Schaefer was, stating, in quote, He hand-delivered mail to some of the houses because they weren't capable of getting to the mailbox. We are very devastated, end quote. On Thursday, the United States Postal Service held a procession in honor of Schaefer, where 47 postal trucks drove on the same route taken by Schaefer on the day of his death. A spokesperson for the city of Longmont said they are working with Schaefer's family and the Postal Service to set up a memorial. Anyone wanting to send a condolence card should send them directly to the Longmont Post Office. Schreiner, who appears to have have no prior criminal record, made her first appearance in Boulder County Court this morning. She remains in customer at Boldy Counter Jail. Today, plans begin to build over 200 manufactured homes in South Fork Collins are headed to the Planning and Zoning Board for approval. Michigan-based developer Sun Communities began working on the plans to break ground on the new development named The Foothills back in 2019. The build-out will span across 52 acres near the intersection of Trilby Road and South College Avenue and will feature 201 homes, a clubhouse with a pool, multiple parks, and a small convenience store. According to developers, house prices are expected to be around $200,000, falling well below Fort Collins' median sales price of $533,000. 15% of the homes will be considered affordable housing for at least 20 years for homeowners whose earnings fall within a certain percentage of the area's median income. The current area median income is $95,000 for a family of four. Under the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, most homes within the new community will fall in the attainable category versus the affordable housing category with specific income and deed restrictions. Some Fort Collins residents have objected to the new development, voicing concerns about the increase in traffic, also adding that there is several low-income housings and trailers already in the area. This is all the local news for today. I'm Portia Cook on KCSU Fort Collins. Stay tuned for sports news with Eliza Droder. Support for KCSU comes from the Fort Collins Book Fest, October 22nd through the 24th. The Fort Collins Book Fest features slasher stories, romance novels, poetry, and more. The event is open to the public and offers more than 35 award-winning authors and speakers, including festival headliner Callie Fajardo-Anstein, author of Sabrina and Karina, horror writer Stephen Graham Jones, and experimental poet Ann Waldman. Attendees can enjoy book talks, writing workshops, and author readings, both in person or streaming online. More information is available at focobookfest.org.
My name is Eliza Drotar, and this is your RMR Sports Report. In CSU football news, the team beat the New Mexico Lobos 36-7 in New Mexico. Our rushing leaders were Jalen Thomas with 10 attempts for 38 yards, David Bailey 21 attempts for 58 yards, and two separate two-yard rushing touchdowns, and quarterback Todd Santeo with 35 rushing yards in 11 attempts. Our top receivers this week, Trey McBride with seven receptions for 135 yards, Ty McCullough with four catches for 77 yards, and Gary Williams with one catch for a 43-yard touchdown. On the defense side, there were six sacks for the Rams. Cameron Carter had five solo tackles, three tackles for 15 yards loss, and two sacks for 11 yards loss. Scott Panchin had six total tackles, three tackles for a nine-yard loss, and two sacks for an eight-yard loss. Quarterback Todd Santeo threw for 289 yards, 16 for 25 in passes, had one touchdown, was sacked four times, and had no interceptions. Their next game will take place on Friday against Utah State in Utah. In women's soccer, the girls won both of their games this weekend, the first one being 3-2 against Nevada at home with goals by Gracie Armstrong, Kristen Noonan, and Caitlin Abrams. In their second game, they went 2-1 against UNLV in overtime with both goals scored by Kristen Noonan. Their next match will be against Utah State on Thursday at 4 p.m. In women's volleyball news, they swept their last two games, 3-0 against the New Mexico Lobos at home, and they beat Air Force 3-0. In those games, Jackie Van Liefde was leading with kills, Sasha Colombo led in blocking assists, Annie Sullivan led in total attacks, Sierra Pritchard leading in assists, and Alexa Romeliotis leading in digs. Their next match will be Thursday night against San Diego State. In cross country in the Nutty Comb Wisconsin Invitational, the women place 6th and the men place 10th. Their next event will be the Mountain West Conference at the end of the month. In women's golf, the girls placed 11th in the Ron Moore Intercollegiate. And in men's golf, the team placed first at the Paintbrush Invitational. In women's tennis, the beach tennis tournament just happened. Busakova and Mahajevic won in straight sets to take home the ITA Regional Champs title. In women's swim and dive, the girls won against University of Denver, UMARY, and Colorado State of Mines. If you are interested in student tickets, go to csuram.evenue.net for your chance to get basketball, football, volleyball, swim and dive, tennis, and more. Student tickets are available. My name is Eliza Drotar, and this is your RMR Sports Report. This is Speaking Well. I'm your host, Greg Dickinson. This is the podcast about communication and everyday life. In each episode, we will talk with a communication expert and scholar and explore how communication research can provide resources for navigating complex interactions. We'll talk about relationships in politics, social media and film, public speaking, and private talk. In this podcast, we will offer straightforward but often challenging explorations about communication centrality to our lives. In this episode, I talk with Morgan Johnson. Morgan is an assistant professor in the Department of Communication Studies at Colorado State University. She researches discourses of racial injustice in the United States, with much of her work focusing on police violence. 
She is currently examining rhetorics of personhood and citizenship in policing oversight initiatives that followed the 2014 Ferguson unrest, including crowdsourced media databases, federal task force, civilian review boards, nonprofit organizations, and the mothers of the movement. Hey, Morgan, it's really great to have you with us today. I appreciate you taking time out of what is surely a busy time of the semester. Could you tell us a little bit about what you do at Colorado State University? Yeah, it's great to be here. Of course, I teach about rhetoric, race, and the relationship between the two for the Department of Communication Studies. Currently on my docket are the history and theory of rhetoric for undergraduate and graduate students. And in the spring, I will be offering race and communications in the United States as a 300 level course, which I shamelessly pitch to any undergraduates listening right now. Additionally, I research the language surrounding racialized violence in the United States, focusing primarily on policing. Great, thanks. Super excited for for the class in the spring and, and thrilled to have you doing the, the history and theory of rhetoric right now. And I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about this research you've been doing. You've been writing about the way citizens have responded to, to state-sanctioned violence against people of color. What are some of the things that you've learned about how citizens have responded in the context of the killing of Michael Brown and the protests that followed in Ferguson? Yeah, I think the thing that I hold closest is really just how dedicated, resilient, and persistent people are, particularly against intense pushback. So as you mentioned, one group I've looked at closely is the media, which is an illuminating example because probably most known is the databases of the Washington Post and the Guardian, Fatal Force and accounted, um, respectively. But those are both based on the work of an individual journalist in Reno, Nevada named Brian Burghardt, who spent years collecting this data on his own and with teams of internet crowdsourcers. And so that database set the foundation for the Washington Post and the Guardian, which has become the foundation for national federal attempts at collecting this data. And so we can really see the ways that groups are working individually, collectively, and even these large organizations toward the issue of police accountability. I've also looked at civilian review boards in cities that have had review boards instated or enhanced by consent decree. And talking to board members of the Baltimore Review Board, for example, they've really been dealing with power struggles in the past few years. While civilian review boards are supposed to be mechanisms of accountability, I think especially when federally decreed self-accountability in some ways, there are all kinds of government tensions that play out federally, locally. So the board really spends as much time fighting for the authority to be a meaningful entity as it does doing the kind of meaningful work that it does. And then I think the mothers of the movement individually and as a group are another amazing example of people who are responding really diversely and powerfully um, in doing legislation, in organizing, but also in doing memory work so that we don't forget those who have been lost or forget the kinds of sacrifices that people have made for them. Great. That's that's a super helpful way of thinking about the work that citizens are doing in, in such a wide variety of ways. Thank you for touching as well on the memory work, which connects us back a little bit to our previous podcast. So you've been writing about this work that can happen following the 2014. Obviously, here we are in 2020, and, and we continue to have the state sanctioned violence and, and the appropriate protests against that violence. As you survey the kind of post-Ferguson landscape, how, if at all, have our conversations 
notions about race, the citizens' responsibility in terms of systemic racism? How, how have they changed or, or stayed the same? You know, this is such a hard question. In some ways, I think it's changed quite a bit. Quite literally, my research trajectory is inspired by the life and death of Michael Brown. My program of research, my ethical commitments were born out of my experience of the Ferguson protests in 2014. And today we are two weeks out from the anniversary of the grand jury announcement. And back then, we only dreamed that defunding police departments could be part of mainstream discourse. On the other hand, my optimism is you know, perpetually tempered by the material fact of continued executions. Alongside conversations of divestment has been a resurgence in law and order rhetoric on the right and language of reform on the left. The current administration's police reform initiatives have largely been framed around law, order, and the support of law enforcement officers, which is not not a response to communities' pleas for reduced policing and accountable police. And thus far, the new administration and even those further to the left, like Bernie Sanders, have largely challenged that position with pretty tepid discussion of reform. So it's a mixed bag, but I am reassured by the felt presence of those who are tirelessly pushing the conversation forward. Yeah, so what I hear you saying is that some some things that were kind of way outside of mainstream discourse in 2014 have, have at least gained some traction in terms of things that many of us talk about, but but haven't really entered into institutional discourse. Have I kind of got that correct? Yeah, yeah. I think Minneapolis is a great example. Whether or not there is transformation in their justice system and their police departments, the fact that they had public deliberation about it, the fact that this is something that the community is really engaged over, I think is rather unpredictable from the perspective of 2014. I want to pivot a little bit. Super important conversation. These things show up. The racism, their concerns about policing show up in in higher education and in high schools, grade schools. You at Penn State, where you're finishing your graduate work, you did some really important work with mentoring those students of color. And I wonder if you could talk with us a little bit about that mentoring, especially in the context of the ongoing conflicts over race and state-sanctioned violence in the U.S. Yeah, the Graduate Alliance for Diversity and Inclusion, we always scuffed about whether it was gaddy or gaudy. Um, (laughs) To be sure, I was just one of a small team of folks who worked to get this to fruition. But about a year into my PhD program, uh, after a series of personal experiences and hearing stories from incoming students, there was a clear need to me for students on our campus, community support, access to facilities, programming. And so talking to my advisor, he got the college involved. Uh, We convened a working group regularly for over a year and officially launched Gaddy in 2018. And with the support of the college, we were able to co-host speakers with other campus groups. We had reading groups. We were collating resources from different communities, both on campus and off campus, offering mentorship opportunities for undergraduates of color, particularly undergraduates of color who were interested in graduate school. 
And right before I left, we were successful in getting a graduate assistantship funded so that a graduate student now gets paid for the labor of sustaining the organization, which is important. And really, Gaddy is thriving since I left Penn State. Um, I'm on the mailing list, so I can tell from newsletters that they are more engaged than ever in issues like the ones we're discussing. In fact, they've been organizing around local issues, particularly one stemming back to March 2019 in State College police officers responding to a mental health crisis killed 29-year-old Osazi Azagi. And he was a former student at Penn State, the son of professors, a very valuable member of the community. And the community is still fighting for the names of the officers to be released to the public, for an independent investigation, for community divestment from the police department. And from what I can tell, Gaddy has been really supporting local organizers in this, namely the 320 Coalition. That's a really wonderful example, uh, wonderful may be the wrong word, a powerful example of the ways in which mentoring students in the university connects us to our communities, our surrounding communities. When you think about that, when you reflect on the program that that you helped start and that continues actively there at Penn State, what are some of the keys for those of us listening to the podcast for successful student mentoring the students of color? Uh, It's not a flashy answer, but I think most importantly, just listen. Don't assume you know what folks want or need. When we were establishing Gaddy, it was clear to us that there were needs, but we didn't want to take for granted that the needs of the working committee were the needs of all of the underserved students on campus, in the college, or even in our departments. And so we held a series of town halls over a year's time, maybe more, just asking graduate students what they were missing from their campus community, what would make their time in graduate school more fulfilling, less taxing. And I think that that is part of the success that the organization has had is just really always being open to feedback and always wanting to be supportive of the specific needs of members. Um, So I think always starting there, listening. Right. I really appreciate that. I find myself wanting to, to move directly to a solution without necessarily even knowing exactly what, what's at issue. And, and it feels like listening is an important part for me, for sure. Yeah, I think that's common for all of us. When, when someone has a need, we just want to, as quickly as we can, be able to fulfill it to solve the problem. Right. As we as we wrap up our conversation, Morgan, and we think about the ways in which the two parts of our conversation have kind of intertwined this work that you're doing on the public response to police violence and then this perhaps a little bit more intimate work on the mentoring in the university, what are some things that students, faculty, scholars, citizens navigating the U.S. public culture, what, what are one or two fundamental things we can think about to combat systemic racism? our context to to make life maybe just a bit bit more humane. Something I keep thinking about from episode four is when Katie Noblock said stay in learning mode. And so I would kind of piggyback off of that to say to keep learning and to keep unlearning. I think for us in the academy, we consider ourselves kind of professional learners, but it's just as easy to forget that learning can be a luxury and unlearning is a responsibility. This spring and summer, we saw a wave of people ordering books about anti-Blackness by Black people from Black-owned businesses. And sure, there were people who never picked those books up from the store 
or never crack them open once they did. Sure, there is earned cynicism in the DEI workshop circuit, but I really don't believe that progress can come without knowledge. And I mean that richly, not just reading academic books or attending professional development, but we can learn so much by listening to people in our daily lives. And there are a lot of people who have been talking for a long time and who want to be heard. So I would say that's definitely one. And relatedly, in doing our homework, we find that there are community leaders aplenty. So getting involved in our communities and finding those who are already doing the work and letting them take the lead, learning to support. But honestly, there's one most important thing that I've been thinking about, particularly as the election came to pass, and that's just keep thinking about it. Don't forget what it's like to not be able to look away don't pretend that the traumas of the Trump presidency have been an aberration. Definitely exhale, definitely rest, but please don't stop. Oh, th those are super powerful. I'm, I'm finding myself as I am every week when I uh, work on this podcast, moved by, by your words and your, your commitment. I love that idea of learning and unlearning. Uh, and I know in my own life that those two things are, are twined together learning new stuff, listening listening to new voices, and then unlearning many things that I've I've been taught over the years. Uh, Morgan, I really, really appreciate you taking time to, to share with us, to have this conversation with me and with our audiences. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you. Speaking Well is a production of the Department of Communication Studies and the College of Liberal Arts at Colorado State University. Carol Bush as the producer and the podcast is recorded and engineered at the studios of KCSU at Colorado State University. I'm your host, Greg Dickinson. Until next time, be well. DJ Mellotron. Come join me on Up the Hill Backwards, Mondays from 3 to 5 p.m. Ooh, 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 ooh. I ain't happy. I'm feeling glad I got sunshine. I'm Cutta Babcock, and you're listening to National News Highlights for Tuesday. Former Secretary of State Colin Powell died of COVID-19 related complications at 85, 84 years old Monday. According to Scott Newman and Don Gonya at National Public Radio, Powell was the first African-American person to serve as the chairman of Joint Chiefs and as Secretary of State. He served under former President George W. Bush. Powell served as an advisor in South Vietnam in the 1960s with the intention to, quote, save the world from communism, end quote. 
NPR says that his struggles in Vietnam shaped his approach to foreign policy. Powell suffered from multiple myeloma at the time of his death, which is a form of blood cancer that harms the immune system. He was fully vaccinated against COVID-19, but his cancer is likely to have reduced his immunity levels. In a statement from the White House, President Joe Biden acknowledged Powell's accomplishments and legacy. Biden said, quote, From his front seat view of history advising presidents and shaping our nation's policies, Colin led with his personal commitment to the democratic values that make our country strong, end quote. After an investigation, the U.S. Coast Guard says that the large oil spill near Southern California was caused by a 1,200-foot cargo ship dragging the pipeline. According to Matthew Brown at the Associated Press, the oil spill closed several California beaches and created detrimental environmental issues for coastal animals. Investigators believe the cargo ship's anchor struck a 16-inch steel pipe, and the impact is believed to have knocked the concrete casing off the pipe. It's unclear if the tear in the pipe was caused by this collision or by a separate impact. 25,000 gallons of crude oil spilled into the ocean, and this could lead to criminal charges for Dordea's Finance Corporation, which owns the cargo ship believed to have caused the spill. The body of a woman, identified as Christina Nance, was found in a police van in Huntsville, Alabama on October 7th. According to Gregory Lemos at CNN, the department purchased the van for the transportation of suspects, and it's rarely used. At a news briefing Friday, Huntsville Deputy Police Chief Dwayne McCarver said that it was department policy to lock the doors of unoccupied vehicles. McCarver said in the news briefing that Nance was seen in security footage walking around the parking lot. McCarver said, quote, She lays down in the bushes at some point, and she sits on the hood of a police car for some time. She approaches other cars in the parking lot, and all this happens for about 10 minutes before she enters the van, end quote. The last time she opened the windows in the vehicle was on September 28th, three days after she'd entered the van. Her family reported her missing on October 2nd and criticizes the department for allowing someone to be undetected in a police vehicle for multiple days, especially as the parking lot was heavily used within those three days. The department says they previously supported Nance prior to her death through their crisis intervention team and that the department knew her relatively well. Civil rights attorney Ben Crump, who represented George Floyd and Breonna Taylor's families, said he will be representing the Nance family through this investigation. Crump said, quote, We will get to the truth of what happened to Christina Nance, the young black woman found dead in the police van in front of the, hunting, the Huntsville Police Department. We lift up Christina's family with prayer as they mourn this devastating loss, end quote. A bipartisan committee in the House of Representatives is asking Amazon for evidence that Jeff Bezos and other top company executives didn't lie to Congress. According to Alina Selyuk at National Public Radio, five members of the congressional committee believe that Bezos lied under oath about the company prioritizing its own products over other sellers on its platform. Monday, a representative from Amazon denied these allegations, with the company claiming that media reports of this behavior are, quote, incorrect and unsubstantiated, end quote. The House of Representatives recently has focused on Amazon's practices, with a report from last year referring to the company as, quote, a gatekeeper for commerce, end quote. Monday, the five committee members sent the letter to Amazon, which was signed by Democrat Gerald Nadler, Democrat David Ciceline, Republican Ken Buck, Democrat Pramila Jayapal, and Republican Matt Gates. That's all for national news highlights. I'm Kuta Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. Now for Anton Schindler's Painting the Corners podcast. 
Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 14th installment of Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler, brought to you by 90.5 KCSU. Now, in last week's episode, we talked all about the Chicago Cubs and their incredible 108-year drought leading up to their most recent World Series win on November 2nd, 2016. And today, we're not going to stray too far away from this quote-unquote older baseball history. No, today we'll be talking about a very special player that caused ample amounts of victories, curses, and the sparking of a true love of baseball for fans all around the United States. When you go around and ask people who they think the best player of all time is, all of them have a pretty similar answer. Now, this man has seemingly hundreds of nicknames, all celebrating his achievements on the baseball field, from the Babe, the Sultan of Swat, the Caliph or Colossus of Clout, the Behemoth of Bust, and, of course, the Great Bambino. That would be none other than the Great Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth was born in Baltimore, Maryland, under the name George Herman Ruth Jr. Growing up, Babe Ruth became a bit of a delinquent and was sent to the reformatory school and orphanage known as St. Mary's Industrial School for Boys. Now, if you didn't know, this delinquent nature would stay with Ruth for the rest of his life. At St. Mary's, Ruth was mentored by brother Matthias Boatlier, who was a rather accomplished baseball player himself, although not professionally. Now, no one is really sure how or when Babe Ruth became so enamored with baseball. Many believe that he played games of stickball in his youth and would hit the ball so far that it would shatter windows all over town. Others believe that Bootlier encouraged Ruth to join the St. Mary's baseball team as a catcher or an infielder. Although Ruth was a lefty, he was forced to use a righty glove to try and get him to be more right-hand dominant. Babe Ruth modeled his hitting and running motions off of Bootlier's motions and would play around 200 games every year, slowly becoming better and better, as you can imagine. Ruth was getting so good, in fact, that the brothers who owned St. Mary's invited the Orioles' owner and manager at that time, Jack Dunn, to watch Babe Ruth play. And, well, he was absolutely amazed. Now, at the time, the Orioles were just a minor league team with no connection to the present-day Baltimore Orioles. But, with the help of Babe Ruth and a few other players, the minor league team would become an absolute powerhouse. At the age of 19, Babe Ruth made his minor league debut as a pitcher. Now, since Ruth was only 19 at the time, Jack Dunn had to become his legal guardian in order to complete his contract. Other minor leaguers on the Orioles referred to him as Jack's newest babe or Jack Dunn's baby, a nickname that would stick with him for the rest of his career. And Babe would go on to have an incredible season. He would go 22-9, and nine, pitching in 35 games and over 244 innings, recording 139 strikeouts as a 19-year-old, playing against a bunch of adults. <laughs> he would play shortstop in 11 more games, getting 28 hits, 10 triples, and one home run in his second at-bat that was supposedly hit further than anyone had ever hit a baseball before. Towards the end of the season, the Baltimore Terrapins, a major league team, would come and sweep all of the fans and interest from Jack Dunn's Orioles. 
he had no choice but to sell his best players in hopes to raise any money for the team and himself. So, Babe Ruth as well as Ernie Shore and Ben Egan would be shipped to the Boston Red Sox. Here, Ruth would only start in two exhibition games, and although he ended up winning both, that was all he was able to play. You see, the problem was, Babe Ruth would do some things that would make him easier to hit. Like, sticking out his tongue ever so slightly every time that he would throw a curveball, and really not doing a great job of hiding his pitches at all. But above all, Red Sox manager Bill Kerrigan didn't like using Babe because of his behavior both on and off of the field. The Red Sox would then send Ruth down to the Providence Grays in order to help him develop as a player. Now, there was a lot of controversy in this move as well because many believe that the only reason for that move was to help the Grays win a championship. You see, the Grays had just sent another big-name player, Ty Cobb, up to the Tigers and needed a replacement for him to satisfy the very frustrated fans. Here, Ruth continued to improve his pitching more and more, supposedly winning four games in just eight days. He would go on to have a 23-8 record and would later be called up to his first Major League Spring training in 1915. After making the team, Ruth had a decent season on the mound, going 18-8 as a pitcher with a 2.44 ERA. But Ruth's hitting prowess really started to shine that season. In 92 at-bats, Ruth would hit 315, knocking in 20 RBIs, as well as hitting four home runs, a spectacle for fans all over the league, since at that time, home runs were very much a rarity. One of these four home runs, in fact, was hit so far with so much power that it ended up leaving the baseball field and going through a window of a Chevrolet dealership across the street. <laughs> Nineteen sixteen was no different other than Babe Ruth improving even more. He had earned himself a starting position in the rotation for the Red Sox, an honor that would take him to a 23-12 record, recording a 175 ERA, which would become his career best. His hitting stayed consistent as well as he hit 272 with another three home runs and three triples over the course of his 37 hits during the season. In 1917, Ruth finished with a 24-13 and record and a 2.01 ERA along with six shutouts that were scattered along that season. Ruth had participated in a combined no-hitter during that season as well in maybe one of the funniest ways possible. You see... Ruth had thrown four straight balls to the first hitter of the game. He was absolutely furious, and he went up and punched the home plate umpire straight in the face, for which he was suspended for 10 games and fined about $100. The next pitcher, Ernie Shore, would come in and record 26 straight outs after getting that runner that was on first out during a steal attempt. The record books would later show the two pitchers getting a combined no-hitter for their, well, for... Ernie's efforts. By 1918, the Red Sox, led by Ruth, would win three pennants in four years and would play against, well, you guessed it, the Chicago Cubs. Before allowing the Cubs to score in Game 4 of that World Series, Ruth had pitched 29 in two-thirds consecutive scoreless innings, a record that would stand for 40 years until Whitey Ford broke it in 1961. In 1919, Ruth decided to focus more on his hitting 
as his pitching statistics started to have a bit of a decline. And it would be the start of his hitting breakout. Ruth had 103 runs, 113 RBIs, and a league-leading 29 home runs with 101 walks and a 322 batting average. He would lead the league in on-base percentage, OPS and OPS+, plus, which basically add the on-base percentage and the player's slugging percentage. And then with OPS+, plus, adjusted for the ballparks that they played in and various other things as well. Not only that, but Ruth would float around the field trying all kinds of different defensive positions that would work best for him, including the outfield and a few infield positions as well. But now we get to the curse. The Red Sox owner at the time, Harry Fraze, was a theater producer that managed to create winning teams off of, well, rather risky trades and risky contracts. At the end of 1919, Fraze was in need of cash for either his upcoming play or other personal reasons. It's still kind of a mystery to this day. But Babe Ruth, and in turn his teammates, started to ask for bigger contracts due to their 1919 season, obviously. But Fraze couldn't come up with the money to pay them. He ended up meeting with the New York Yankees owner, Cap Houston, and ended up selling Ruth's contract for about $100,000, which was the largest sum ever paid for a baseball player. Although there were mixed reactions from the Red Sox fans, some being so sad that Babe Ruth was leaving, some, you know, alright with him leaving, the obvious was destined to happen regardless. Babe Ruth was now set to play at the Polo Grounds. Now, if you've never seen pictures of the Polo Grounds, the dimensions are a bit, well, favorable to hitters that can pull the ball or push the ball one way or another, but also not favorable to hitters that usually hit it right down the middle. You see, it was only 279 feet to left field and 258 feet to right, which is just a bit under 100 feet less than most like high school and college fields that we see today. But the polo grounds was a bit of a rectangle, so it was about 455 feet to left center, 449 feet to right center, and 483 feet <laughs> to dead center. Now, for some background on that, the longest home run ever hit was 582 feet, which is just under 100 feet more than what it would take to get a ball out to center field. But, if you could pull the ball at all, however, it was probably gone. And that's exactly what Babe did. With his time at the Polo Grounds, Ruth hit 85 home runs, just a tiny chunk of the eventual 659 that he would hit for the New York Yankees. But, going back to the curse, the transaction seemed to put the Red Sox on a World Series drought that would last 85 years, and this would be known as the Curse of the Bambino. You see, with Ruth, the Red Sox won five of the first 16 World Series to ever be played. But they wouldn't win another until 2004, after the trade had happened. The Yankees, on the other hand, would win seven AL pennants and four World Series in the 15 seasons that he played with them. That sounds like quite a curse to me. Ruth's stats with the Yankees are 
absolutely incredible and really the main reason why he is so widely regarded as the best baseball player of all time. In 15 seasons, Ruth would rack up 2,518 hits, 1,959 runs, 1,978 RBIs, 659 home runs, 1,852 walks, and a 349 batting average. I mean, that is without a doubt video game numbers, like something that you would do in MLB The Show, not in real life. In 1923, Ruth won the MLB MVP award after a 41 home run season with a 545 on base percentage, and the famous point to the outfield that he would eventually hit a home run after in the 1932 World Series, of course. But regardless, I strongly urge you to look up Babe Ruth on Baseball Reference or anything like that to see his full list of offensive stats because no matter where you look, it's incredible. I mean, these are numbers that you don't just get every blue moon, but maybe once every millennium. I mean, as of right now, Babe Ruth still holds the record for highest slugging percentage, highest OPS and OPS+, plus, as well as wins above replacement at a whopping 182.5. The next closest, for reference, is Walter Johnson at 164.5. Babe finished his career with 2,873 hits, 714 home runs, 2,214 RBIs, and a 342 batting average at the plate, while also recording a 94 and 46 record with a 228 ERA on the mound. Now, it's really hard to put into words all of the great things that Babe Ruth not only did for baseball, but for fans all around the United States. I mean, he helped to spark an excitement in the game of baseball that no one was able to really do before. He drew fans to the ballparks as well as inspired other players on how to improve and change their game into what is now a very highly competitive game that we see today. Some argue that the way that he was able to interest people in baseball really helped save the sport from unpopularity and even possible extinction, especially after the war had diverted the United States' view away from the sport and really just sports in general. I mean, there are just so many great Babe Ruth stories and moments that it'd be impossible to jam it all into one podcast. And I really hope that this podcast inspires you to go out and see what else the Babe did for the game of baseball. And I definitely recommend starting with Babe Ruth's famous called shot in that 1932 World Series because, oh my goodness, that is the coolest thing you will ever see. <laughs> so next week's episode, we're going to be talking about the crazy, I mean absolutely crazy ride of the 2005 Chicago White Sox. Thank you for listening. Would you like to be a part of a rising industry on your college campus? Well, you should check out KCSU and their podcast department. 90.5 KCSU is Colorado State University's student-run radio station where you can be involved with music, news, sports, and even production and podcasting. Come on down into the basement of the Lori Student Center and talk to a staff member today. Just remember to follow the music.
And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to COVID-19 Updates for Tuesday. Colorado State University reports over 3,800 cases of COVID-19 among students, staff, and faculty. 89.1% of on-campus students reported full or partial vaccination to the university, and 88.9% of employees reported vaccination to the university as well. Larimer County and the Centers for Disease Control report high levels of community transmission for COVID-19. The county begins enforcing a mask mandate, which requires masks in all public places, Wednesday. Larimer County recommends that in high transmission risk periods, residents take the following precautions. Get vaccinated as soon as possible if you are not already. Wear masks, including in private indoor spaces, if members of another household are present. Be sure your mask has a snug fit and consider wearing a KN95 mask. Postpone all gatherings if possible, and if the event must occur, consider requiring all attendees to be vaccinated or limiting the number of households. If the event is indoors, consider moving it outdoors. Get tested for COVID-19s if you have any concerns over exposure or symptoms. Larimer County reports over 38,500 cases of COVID-19, along with over 300 deaths. The county's case rate sits at 250 cases per 100,000 residents, in the past seven days, and 90 COVID-19 patients are in area hospitals. Intensive care units are full at 107% capacity. The state of Colorado reports over 710,000 cases of COVID-19, and over 8,000 Colorado residents have died from complications of COVID-19. 7.5 million vaccines were administered by the state Tuesday morning, and 3.5 million Colorado residents are fully immunized against the virus that causes COVID-19. Nationally, the U.S. reports a total of 45 million cases of COVID-19 and over 726,000 deaths. New daily cases average at 83,000, while new deaths average at over 1,600 daily. In the past two weeks, cases went down by 20%, while deaths went down by 11%. Hospitalizations have started going down among all age groups, including the 60 to 69 and 70 plus age groups, which are at the highest risk for severe COVID-19. Information from today's segment comes from Colorado State University, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, the Centers for Disease Control, the Associated Press, and National Public Radio's Coronavirus Tracker. That's all for COVID-19 updates. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. Now for tech news. I'm Coda Babcock, and these are tech news updates for October 19th. Sunday, Facebook announced plans to hire 10,000 European Union employees in the next five years as it works on a new platform. According to Kelvin Chan and Matt O'Brien at the Associated Press, the platform, quote, promises to connect people virtually, but could raise concerns about privacy and the social platform gaming more control over people's online lives, end quote. These new positions will employ mostly well-educated or highly skilled people to work on a platform that uses augmented and virtual reality within social media. While Facebook plans to work on what they're calling the metaverse, the company faces antitrust crackdowns and testimonies of unethical practices from former employees. The metaverse describes a virtual world which could be accessed in real time and could be used to hold meetings or be used to buy digital assets. 
The term was originally coined in Neil Stevenson's novel Snow Crash in the 1990s, but tech businesses recently began using it to describe futuristic programming. Netflix fired an employee for leaking information on the recent Dave Chappelle special's analytics information to the press. According to Andrew Limbong at National Public Radio, they also recently fired and then reinstated a transgender employee who organized a walkout as a result of the platform continuing to push Chappelle's content, which they say pushes rhetoric that directly harms and threatens the lives of transgender people. The data leaked shows that Chappelle's 2019 Netflix special, Sticks and Stones, performed worse than many other comedy specials, including Bo Burnham's Inside. Netflix defended the firing, saying that the employee leaked, quote, confidential, commercially sensitive information, end quote. Former Microsoft CEO Bill Gates was warned by two company executives to stop sending inappropriate emails to a female employee years ago. According to Kim Lyons at The Verge, Gates sent what The Verge called flirtatious emails to the employee while he was still married. And after being confronted by two executives of the company, Gates didn't deny sending the emails and told them he would stop interacting with the employee in this manner. In 2019, board members at Microsoft suggested that Gates should step down as an investigation into an affair with an employee was underway. The employee in question reportedly alerted the board in writing that Gates and her had a multiple years long sexual relationship. Bill and Melinda Gates finalized their divorce in August of this year after 27 years of marriage. That's all for Tech News. I'm Koda Babcock, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. We'll be right back with the weather. Today was cool and cloudy with a high of 59 and a low of 33, with about a 20% chance of rain tonight and moderate winds. Wednesday, you can expect winds to back off and temperatures to warm up a bit to a high of 64 and a low of 36. Thursday continues to warm up to a high of 69 and a low of 36, once again with lower wind speeds. And for Friday, you'll have to tune into the Rocky Mountain Review from 4 to 5 p.m. This Thursday, only on 90.5 KCSU, Fort Collins. I'm Cutta Babcock, and information comes from the Weather Channel. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Portia Cook, Thomas Taylor, Stephanie Keel, Stevie Jones, Hannah Copeland, Eric, Elliot Hutchinson, Eric Zhang, Brennan Cole, Lindsay Johnson, Eliza Droder, Samuel Bailey, Ben Haney, Ben Kruger, Anna Schwabi, Marie Tanksley, Dixon Lawson, Peter Walk, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Allie. And we finally couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you. And with that, we'll see you next time.